On Sunday morning, we worship by engaging in spiritual practice. The meaning of the old English worships, to consider that which is of worth, to hold that which is worthy. We remember what has worth once a week for a little while together. And the 168 hours in a week, we set aside precisely one hour for this. Work that's not exactly work, this activity that isn't very active and that yields no product, except sometimes a kind of deepening, a shifting of perspective, an interior transformation, a revelation. Sometimes, by luck or grace, we may glimpse something invisible, a sense of reassurance, acceptance, comfort, or peace, whether peace of mind or peacefulness of spirit, sufficient for the hours and the days ahead. We may feel gratitude, forgiveness, resolution. We, we may feel an unwelcome and uneasy challenge to calcified convictions, an unexpected stirring to more concerted courage, or a call for actionable outrage, when outrage is what's needed in the world beyond the self. These feelings are immeasurable, intangible, and are not felt by everyone at once. Worship for us is communal and yet essentially private. Who knows how far anyone will travel between the prelude and the closing words? These are the words of the Reverend Victoria Safford, and we are blessed to receive them. In the last five years, I can't tell you how often I have been asked to tell my story about my call to ministry. This sort of a romantic notion people have that those of us who've left a successful career to enter church work, that we must have had one of those Damascus experiences, those powerful conversions where we were stopped in our tracks from going one direction and suddenly turned and went another direction. But in my experience, most of us who make this change, and I'm joined here by a number of fellow people who made this journey with me in seminary in the back of the room, most of us have not had all that clear direction when we started this path. But what we are clear about is that we are leaving behind a career or a life that was not answering some deep need. I do remember the moment that I decided to go to seminary, but it wasn't a sudden decision. I had been dissatisfied with my life for years, although I wasn't really able to identify that very well. Once my children became teenagers, I felt liberated from that all-encompassing role of being the overachieving parent and a full-time nurse practitioner and all the other volunteer work I did. And I started to do all those things that I had envied other people that they were doing in their lives and they would tell me the stories about. I felt finally free to do the things I'd been dreaming about for years. I traveled to foreign countries. I went to Cambodia, South Africa, India, Peru, to name just a few of them. And on weekends, I'd meet friends down in Phoenix. We'd go to resorts and we'd sit by the swimming pool and we would have drinks of wine around tables, we would have massages and share great meals. And I entertained at my house, I had tons of parties at my house and I bought new dishes and furniture and I tried to make my place look nice and it was very comfortable. 
And then during my children's school vacations, we would drive to the ocean in California and Mexico, or we'd go to Disneyland and we'd visit the national parks. I was doing everything I wanted to be doing, everything I had dreamed about doing. And it didn't, it didn't touch that internal need. I remember one time when this inner emptiness became very clear to me. It was so blatant. I was walking out of a spa after a massage, and I thought that while the massage was wonderful for that one hour, the moment I walked out, my back and my shoulders were tense and tight, and I was right back where I had come from. All the deep massage and care in the world couldn't resolve what was ailing me. And I don't know what was missing. I couldn't name it or articulate what was happening in my life because I was leading the life I thought that I wanted. It turns out that Buddhism has a metaphor for what ailed me. It's the hungry ghost. In his essay on transformation, Reverend Michael Schuler describes the hungry ghost this way. Eager for happiness and the experience of true contentment, this benighted creature subsists on the deceptively thin fare our culture provides. Easily appropriated pleasures that dull the cravings but do not satisfy them. It is greedy for experiences and possessions to fill its emptiness. Yet for all the effort the ghost expands, it still feels impoverished. The hungry ghost may compensate for its emptiness through the compulsive quest for pleasure or prestige, but it is unlikely to find in such pursuits an antidote for its chronic discontent. The US culture of consumerism feeds our hungry ghost. We accumulate possessions in an effort to satisfy the feeling that we lack something in our lives. We entertain ourselves with more and more exciting trips or technology. We strive towards that idealistic good life that our TV and media has portrayed for decades. If so, if you go on your computer and you type in the words good life into your search browser, the screen fills with images of people lounging on beaches or sitting around in wine, the vineyards drinking wine at these beautiful set tables or being pampered at spas. Sometimes it has images of diamonds or long stemmed roses. So while the culture we swim in portrays a vision of the good life that's a little bit self-indulgent and acquisitive, Surveys show that in the past half century, we are less satisfied and less happy. In 1945, surveys indicated that the US citizens were the happiest in the world. Not so much now. Despite all our comforts and privileges, we are now rated among the unhappiest nations. Despite all the novelty, excitement, and sensory stimulation that is supplied in abundance, this culture does not satisfy us. It doesn't provide us with what we truly need and what we truly want. So then the question becomes, what is it that will satisfy me? What will make me feel comfort, more content, more happy? It's an intriguing question, and it's a question that has been asked throughout the centuries. It's the question about the point of life about what this is all about, but the answer changes. I think the answer depends on your location, your social location, 
your geographic location, your economic, cultural, generational locations. Several years ago, this question came up at Harvard Seminary. They recognized that folks younger than 40 confessed that they felt more globally connected, but felt locally isolated. They felt religious and a desire to explore their spirituality, but they did not believe in being connected or affiliated with institutions such as churches. They felt more comfortable setting up a loan to farmers in Kenya than they did to taking a bowl of chicken soup to their next door neighbor. Americans today are the most isolated in human history. A study done in 1985 asked participants the number of people in who they could confide personal information, and the average number was three. A report of the same study in 19, uh, 2004 showed that the average number had dropped with more than one out of four people saying they had no one they felt they could talk to. Peter Morales, the former president of the UUA, says this, Americans are far lonelier than they were a generation ago. Many of us are lonely, and all of us are surrounded by lonely people. Loneliness is among us like an invisible epidemic. We have unwittingly created a culture that rips apart human ties outside the household. We face an emotional and spiritual crisis. So I return to the question, what is it that will satisfy me? The answer involves looking at our integrity. Not integrity in the meaning of whether we are honest with each other, but integrity in terms of how we live and being consistent to our core. This is about integration in three broad categories. There's community integration. We need community. You and I are relational creatures. We need to feel we belong, that we have dependable relationships with others. This includes concentric circles with some intimate relationships we hold close, as well as casual friends and family, and as well as a larger circle of reliable people who we feel a part of. The second thing is a personal integration. We need to some, find some way to acknowledge that part of ourselves that is more than our body and more than our intellect. It is awakening of our hearts and our souls. It is that part of ourselves that makes us alive and makes us vulnerable. This is our spiritual nature and our religious search. And then there's a global integration. We need to have a sense of calling, a feeling that what we do matters a way of being part of healing the wrongs we are surrounded by through direct service, through donating time and money, by standing or marching in witness to harm done to others or the planet, by working to change the systems of oppression and racism. We need to feel that we are life-affirming. So traditionally, the role of the church has been to help us grapple with some of the more metaphysical dilemmas of life talking about God and how we define that word, addressing maybe what salvation means, talking about good or evil or heaven or hell. And for 50 years or so, the Unitarian Universalist Church has been a refuge, 
for people fleeing their Catholic or Mormon, Episcopalian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Presbyterian faiths, and we often joke that we are a recovery program. But this is actually no longer true, we're finding. Folk who come here these days are not fleeing from traditional churches or mosques or synagogues because of the harm of the messages they've heard. We come here because the spiritual concerns we have are not being adequately dressed anywhere. We come here seeking a way to respond to the secularism, the hedonism and consumerism that has set our whole culture adrift. We come here for re-sanctification of our daily life. We need to know how to identify what is valuable to us, what is healing, what is nourishing. We need ways to recognize and honor what is sacred in the daily existence of our lives. Thomas More, a Jungian therapist and Catholic cleric says, there are two ways to think about church and religion. One is that we go to church to be in the presence of the holy. The other is that the church teaches us directly and symbolically to see the sacred dimension of everyday life and helps us maintain mindfulness about the religion that is inherent in everything we do. I think we hold both true. I need to be here in church to be reminded to honor what is sacred and to remind myself that all of life is sacred. This congregation, this church has some ambivalence about growing in size. There's a fear of what we might lose in terms of community if we have too many people coming to join us. But if we set our vision on what we are about, we can set aside those distractions related to our internal fears and to our internal needs about volunteers and pledges. We grow in size because the world needs us. In fact, our growth would be a testament that we are getting it right, that we are really addressing spiritual and community needs. And I would suggest the corollary might also be true. Not growing or staying the same size may be an indication that we are missing the mark in addressing the needs of our world. We are here because we are committed to building a community where we care for each other, where we find friends and reliable companions. We are here because we are committed to re-sanctifying life. We each want our hearts to open up, our souls to soar, to feel our spirit come to life. We want to recognize what is valuable, true, and good in our life. We are here because we want to be part of healing the world. We want to acknowledge the pain of the suffering and the people and the planet. We long for active engagement with what is happening around us. The world needs this form of integrity. The world needs this vision of beloved community that each of us hold. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, our community needs to be a place of transforming spirituality where each of us develop lives of greater understanding, love, solidarity, and stillness. Our work is to ignore the trap of feeding the hungry ghost and turning to feeding what ails us. Together, we work to satisfy our need for spiritual grounding, 
we dedicate ourselves to being part of a community of caring where we actively, vibrantly love each other and our world. And when we forget, because we do, when we forget why we come here and what we are doing together, our work is to remind each other. Our work is to look at each other and say, I am here with you. I see your spirit. I love you. Join me in healing this world.